Amen. God bless you. Welcome. It's good to see you all. John chapter 17 this morning. I wanted to let you know that within the next, oh, six weeks, maybe 10 weeks at the most, we'll be launching our new website. And so you'll be looking forward to that. That's going to be a cool tool to drive people to that don't know about our church. And I'm going to throw my worship leader under the bus a couple times here this morning. Um, one is uh, I've asked them because many of you have, not because, again, we want to give any kind of recognition or make anybody famous here signing autographs, but because we want them as a tool of outreach to know what it's like to worship here amongst us. I've asked them to uh, make a CD um, of some of the songs that we sing here, and then you can hand that out to your friends. We'll try to eventually get those songs onto the website. I'm thinking maybe Mike would call that From the Inside Out or something. Uh, would be a good uh, title. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, anyway, that's going to be really cool. And so now he has to do it because I just said it from the pulpit. <laughs> now, we'll also want to throw him under the bus by showing you his first CD. Nate, if you could cue up the slide. That's Mike Hadley right there. That, that CD was entitled, This Love is Strong. And uh, Nate, were you a born at that time? I don't, oh, just kidding. I, I think more, Nate was two or three, right? Something like that. It's a long time ago. He had that long hair. If you see the fellowship directories from Capitol Community back in the day, Dennis has that long hair too. So that's uh, just the way it was back in the day. Anyway, Mike gave me a copy of that uh, CD a couple weeks ago. I thought it was like the last one in existence, but then someone found it in Mexico, I heard, and then, uh, um, <laughs> and then my wife had one the week after that, so I wasn't really that special. But one of those songs is a song that I grew up singing in church, so it can't be that old, because I'm not old. You know that, right? Right, okay. But one of the songs is, uh, it is Isn't It Amazing is the name of the song. Remember that one? Isn't it amazing what a prayer can do? And it's so true, right? It's so true that a prayer can change my entire disposition. In fact, sometimes why I don't want to pray. Because I want to be self-centered. I want to hold on to my frustration. I want to be right. I don't want to have to say I'm sorry. And I know if I pray, guess what? I'm going to have to do those things. It is amazing what a prayer can do, but how much more amazing is it, not just when we pray, but when the Lord prays? And this morning in John chapter 17, we're going to see the most amazing prayer that you've ever seen. It's not us praying to the Lord. It's Jesus praying on behalf of us to the Father. And it's pretty sweet. The great 16th century reformer John Knox once said that John chapter 17 is the holy of holies in the temple of scripture. That's why on his deathbed he had his wife read John chapter 17 to him over and over again. Even to the point there was a, a pastor who was visiting at first service who told me to the point where when he couldn't talk anymore they told him Raise your hand when you affirm that these things are true. And he would raise his hand three times as they would read it to him over and over again. Wonderful. Some commentators refer to this as the true Lord's Prayer because he's actually praying. We think of Matthew 6 and Luke 11 as the Lord's Prayer. Of course, that's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Wonderful prayer. But Jesus was modeling prayer. He didn't actually pray that prayer. Remember, the disciples came to him and said, show us how to pray, like John the Baptist showed his disciples how to pray. And so the Lord's Prayer is a model. It's structured. It's comprised of the components of prayer. But the Lord never prayed that prayer. How do I know? Because in Luke 11, you know the part in Matthew 6 where it says, forgive us our debtors? In Luke 11, it says, forgive us our sins. And the Lord Jesus would never pray for forgiveness of sins because, well, he never sinned. So really, more likely, that prayer could be called the disciples' prayer in a lot of ways because it's such a wonderful way to pray and learn how to pray the way that Jesus taught us. But here this morning in John 
chapter 17. This is actually Jesus praying to the Father, and it is amazing. And I know I keep using that word, but I've run out of ways to describe the Lord Jesus as we've been looking at his work in the book of John, scene after scene. It's just amazing. It's amazing that the Holy Spirit would allow us to eavesdrop on a prayer between Jesus and the Father. And one of the reasons why it's so important for us to listen to this prayer and understand how Jesus is praying is because we've been talking about several times what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In other words, how do we pray consistently with the character, in line with the will of Jesus? That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And my hope is this morning that you will be amazed by his prayer, yes, but not just that, it won't stop there, but that you will see the things that are most important to Jesus, and that will help us not only in our prayer, but how we live our lives. Imagine, imagine if someone put a huge ad in the newspaper and said that the Lord Jesus was going to be at a big church in town or out at the beach there at the boardwalk or in some gigantic stadium somewhere, if it were true. It's not true, but if it were true and you could go down to that service and the Lord Jesus would pray over you. I mean, the lines that would be out that place, that would be something. But I wonder if I was going to go there and if the Lord Jesus, as a child of God, were to lay his hand on my shoulder and pray for me, what it, would it be that he would pray for over my life? That we'd all be millionaires by the end of the month of July. That we'd all be famous and we'd be added to the Hollywood walk of shame. I mean fame. <laughs> Sorry. Or that People Magazine next year when they come out with the 25 uh, you know, most intriguing people, it'd have to be 125 because it would have to include our church body as well because we'd all be intriguing in the world today. No, I don't think that is what he would pray for. There are a lot of fanciful ideas out there about what is on Jesus' heart for his people. And seemingly we've gotten away from what is really on Jesus' heart at times in this world today. Most of those things, it seems, center around material and temporal things. But I'm telling you, that's not where he's at. You won't find him there. Those aren't the things that are nearest and dearest to his heart. And so we get to see, by looking at John 17, what is, what is most important to him. And so why not say, look, if this is what he's praying on my behalf, then God, this is my prayer for me as well. I have to go through a little bit more text than I usually do in a morning because there's no good way to break up this text uh, except in three sections. And I thought rather than do three 40-minute studies, I'd just do one two-hour study. So go ahead and get comfortable this morning. And I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But a pillow wouldn't be a bad idea. I'll move as quickly as we can through it. I know we have to eat, and someone's cooking ribs out there. So I know we're limited. Now you can't pay attention to anything I said, right? <laughs> ribs were said and there you go it is divided into three sections john chapter 17 verses 1 through 5 he prays for himself and sets the stage for his prayer in verses 6 through 19 he prays for his disciples but anytime jesus is praying for or addressing his disciples if you're a follower of christ it's applicable to you right because you're a disciple you're a learner of Jesus Christ. And then, though, specifically in verses 20 to 26, he prays for all believers, all believers. And that's so where he really dives in and is praying for future disciples down the road. I can't wait to get into it. Verse 1, and it will help us build a little bit of context. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes. As he begins his prayer, he lifts up his eyes. Now, I'm not saying when you pray, you have to lift up your eyes. Some people like to close their eyes. Some like to bow their head. Some like to get down on their knees. One man said, the best prayer position ever when I was, was when I was uh, hanging upside down from a telephone pole after my safety strap had broke. He said, that's the best prayer position I've ever been in before. Utter desperation. 
the man who spoke, the pastor who spoke at our men's retreat said, you know, the key here is not so much the physical posture, but the spiritual posture. Notice it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven. That when I'm praying, my focus is on eternal things, on things that matter. And that I stay focused on who it is that I'm talking to, the king of glory, the creator of the universe. So maybe you might want to at least mouth the words or go somewhere where you can pray out loud. You ever have a tendency to pray and lose train of thought a little bit? I can be driving down the road, start praying for I know it. I'm really just talking to myself because I've forgotten who I'm speaking to. Ever fallen asleep in the middle of prayer? I don't know if that's all bad. That might be the Lord's lullaby, so to speak. That's okay. But I'm saying prayer sometimes, focused, eternity, it matters, making him the idea. And that's the, the thought here. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And we've been hearing a lot about his hour. He kept saying his hour had not come. Now he's saying it has come. And literally it has. Because after John chapter 17, after he finishes this prayer, they cross over the brook Kidron. And in John 18, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And who's there waiting for him, essentially? Judas. And so, here we go. I mean, we are literally at the hour. The public ministry of Jesus is over. His upper room discourse is over. It's a prayer. And then now we're on the brink. We're on the eve of the day in which humanity would be altered for all of eternity. So he prays, Father, the hour has come. End of verse 1, he says, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you, as you've given him authority over all flesh. Glorify the Son as your Son has glorified you. How was glory going to be brought to the Son and the Father? Through the cross. Right? It would be through the cross that the Father and Son would be glorified. Well, wait a minute. How can the cross, how can utter humiliation bring glorification to the Son and to the Father? How is it that that would be possible? Well, the thing that most glorifies God, I believe, in this world is not so much his creative acts, although creation speaks of his glory, right? You look around on a beautifully lit starlit night. What are we, eight days away from full moon we were talking about? That's a wonderful thing to see. I was watching a movie uh, a few weeks ago, neat line in the movie, there's a, a man and a woman and they're standing atop a hill overlooking the ocean at sunset. And the woman yells out, is that the best you got, God? It was glorious what she was looking at. Yeah, the creation speaks of his glory. But perhaps, maybe even more so than his creative acts, God's redemptive acts might be the more glorious part about him. That he would be known as a God who loves sinners. And his message here is that the only way that we could understand love is through the cross. And that ultimately that would the only way that we could be reconciled unto the Father as well. As he explains here in the end of verse 2, he says that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have Sent. That's eternal life. By the way, if you know Jesus Christ, you are beginning eternal life already. You don't wait till you get to heaven. You're already experiencing and enjoying eternal life because to enjoy eternal life is to know Jesus Christ. The word know there in verse 3 speaks of intimacy. The same word that it would describe the intimacy between a husband and a wife. Salvation is not merely knowing about God or believing that he exists. James went on later to say that the demons believe, but not a single one of them is going to be in heaven. There's not one demon that's an atheist or even slightly agnostic. They know who God is without any shadow of a doubt. But Jesus is saying to know God here is to be intimate with him and his son. It's to have a relationship with him and the Son, whom the Father, it says, has sent. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth, 
And listen to what he says. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Isn't that interesting that he says he's finished the work? What did God send him to do? He sent him to go to the cross, ultimately. But Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, but in his mind, it's a slam dunk. It's a done deal. It's already happened. There's no compromise. There's no questions. He's not recalibrating, should I or should I not? He was fully committed to going to the cross. He knew he was going to go to the cross. And so he says, I'm going to the cross. Father, I finished the work. And so with that in mind, he says, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now get this, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, what he's saying is he was longing for, he was looking forward to that time in which he would go back to where he was. He would go back to heaven. He would be uh, clothed in glory once again. Only God knew, and we will discover someday, only God knew what Jesus gave up in coming here. As I've said before, so often we think of his sacrifice as the work on the cross. But if we had just a picture of heaven and we understood what he gave up to come here just to live for us, we would have a greater appreciation for how much he loves us. On Thursday, I went over and visited Jim. And those of you who may or may not know, Jim's been in and out of the hospital now and rehab places for four or five months. And he told me that after that stint, when he walked back into his living room, it was like glory. He said it was beautiful. Jim has a nice house, but it's not the house. It's just home. It's where his wife is. It's where his kids come to visit him. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, man, I can't wait to get back to my father's house. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation groans for the day of redemption. Do you find yourself sometimes groaning for the day of redemption? For the Lord's return? To see Jesus? Let me tell you something. I'm with you. I like going on vacation. Isn't it great to go somewhere and see something you've never seen before? A sunset, some famous building or artifact or whatever. And there's a lot of beautiful sights to see, but nothing compares to that day. It won't even be close. You imagine just for a second, take a moment in your mind to think about what it would be like to see Jesus clothed in royalty and righteousness, where he was before the foundation of the earth. And yet, we've never even seen heaven. We didn't go there and then come down here and then long to go back. I was never clothed in glory before, and yet I so badly long to see him someday. It's probably why, as Jesus begins to pray for his disciples here in verse 6, it's probably why he begins with a note of gratitude and thankfulness towards the Father because he knows that those disciples are going to get to see him in that glory someday. He says, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. Speaking of the 11 that were with him at the time. The word manifest there means to shine forth. So when Jesus said that he had manifested the Father's name, in essence, what he was saying was he was shining brightly to show people what the Father was like. It's not just that he was preaching about him verbally, verbally but he was living out what he looks like, what he acts like, observably. That was his focus and his emphasis to shine forth. And that's oftentimes what is the hardest part for us as Christians to do. It's one thing to sing his praises, to read his word, to pray, all of those things. Sometimes the harder part is to try and shine forth our lives, to allow him to work through my life so that people can see what it looks like. To live in a way in which people say, that's the character of God. Okay, he's loving, he's forgiving, 
he's patient or whatever. Those are the more challenging things for us sometimes. Character. It's difficult, huh? And Charles Spurgeon said something along the lines, you know, seek not to, uh, you know, carve your name in, in stone like the Hollywood Walk of Fame, he said, but rather carve your love on people's hearts. And I agree with that, that that ought to be our mission. He said, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So again, he starts off here by acknowledging the work that's already been done in the disciples. Thank you, Father, that they've believed your words, that they've received your words, because they're going to be in heaven with me someday. He's acknowledging the work that's already been done in them. And I love this because my tendency, maybe it's yours too, is to only think about all the failures and the disappointments of the disciples. To think about all the ways in which they messed up. And because of that, I think sometimes that's how a Christian lives too. They live their life oftentimes wallowing that they're in some huge disappointing stage of their life in terms of God. But Jesus is generous. He looks at his guys and he thanks God like Paul does in a letter. He almost always begins, even before he exhorts them, by thanking God for the fruit in the lives of the people that he's writing the letter to. It's a total blessing. He says, I look at these guys and I'm tickled pink. It's wonderful. It's neat to know that Jesus thinks that way about us sometimes. Because we're going to get challenged by him. His word is exhortive. Right? We have to be challenged. We can't just kind of go through the motions of life. We want to keep growing in Christ. But it's neat to know that Jesus sees us and goes, they've received my word. And they've believed my word. I'll tell you what, I don't have, you know, my role in the whole grand scheme is just as minimal as anybody else's. Um, It's a small part that we all play. But I'll tell you what, like a dad who's blessed when their children take their first step or whatever the case may be as a pastor, can I just tell you that nothing blesses me more, nothing in the world, than you're closing your eyes doing an altar call and two children are sitting down here waiting to receive Christ as we saw a couple weeks ago. Nothing better than that. Nothing better than that. No vacation, no movie, No amount of money wouldn't trade to see that. Or when a man chooses to make a public declaration of that faith by choosing to be baptized. Nothing better than that. That will be my joy and my privilege to participate in that. That is awesome. Or when a woman conjures up the courage to share her faith at work because Uh, She was challenged in the women's ministry or she heard something in the teaching or in the discussion that gave her that boldness to talk to somebody at work. Or when the church body raises their hands unto the Lord in worship and are swept up by his love and his mercy and his grace in their lives. Nothing blesses me more than those things. It's wonderful. And Jesus is saying that very thing. He's saying, when I look at my boys, I'm blessed. I'm not disappointed in them. Blessed by them. But in light of what he knew they and what he knows we go through as disciples, he begins here in verse 9 to intercede more specifically on their behalf. He says, verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Remember, the world represents unbelief. It represents those who do not believe, or even the system that attempts to keep people in unbelief. And so he says, I'm not praying for those who are going to continue to uh, resist me throughout their entire lives. I'm praying for those who will believe. I'm not praying to change the system. I'm not worried about the system. He's saying, I'm praying for those, says middle of verse 9, whom you have given me, for they are yours And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. 
Look what he says. Holy Father, keep. And if you're an underliner or a circler, you might want to underline or circle that word keep. Because he's not just a saving God, but he's a keeping God as well. He says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. Now pay attention to this little subtlety. He says, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say he's a keeping God? If he's a keeping God, what does it mean there when it says none of them were lost except the son of perdition? Aren't believers eternally secure, you might wonder? And of course, the son of perdition is speaking of Judas, right? Now, Judas is not an example of a child of God being lost. Judas is an example of someone who appears to be a believer, but in reality is later exposed as a fraud. So you might ask me this morning for my opinion. I don't know why, but I'll give it to you anyway. You might say, Pastor, do you believe in the eternal security of a believer? And the answer is, yes, I do. However, I will say this. Ultimately, my opinions don't really matter that much. You've got to do your own reading of the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean what I'm saying is come to your own opinions independent of the Bible. Well, I just think that whatever. Or it just seems to me that God would never whatever. Don't start going down that road. Go to his word to decide what you believe and what you don't believe. I believe in eternal security, but remember, all throughout the Bible, the illustration is clear. He's the potter, and we're the clay. And I'm just a piece of clay trying to tell the other pieces of clay all about the potter. Right? So you got to do the research for yourself. you got to read his word for yourself. But yes, I believe in eternal security. I believe in eternal security for a true believer. Just because someone prayed a prayer, raised their hand, or walked the aisle doesn't make them a true believer. They're a true believer if they are born again and are filled of the Spirit of God. And in that instance, the Bible says very clearly, you cannot be plucked out of his hand. And that much we know. He said it in his word. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The Apostle Paul posed the question in Romans chapter 8. He said, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our security is a surety. So really, he begins his prayer more with thanksgiving, thanking the Father for eternal security. Now he gets on to the even more specific elements of what he wants to see in the life of believers, and he begins with sanctity. Verse 13, he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He prays that they, the disciples, that we will have Jesus' joy inside of ourselves. And why? Because he knows it's going to get tough. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what's he talking about? Persecution. A few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that that is a component that goes along with it. <laughs> You're a Christian, you will be persecuted. One of the last verses from last chapter was, in this world you shall suffer tribulation. He said there will come a time in which they will think they're doing God a favor by killing you. And there was a time in the church when that was the case, and we're not far off in some parts of the world. There is that going on to this day. So he's saying persecution is a big thing. But Robert Murray McShane once said this beautiful, beautiful quote. He said, if I could hear Christ 
praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Isn't that so? He said, yet distance shouldn't make any difference. He is still praying for me. If I could hear the voice of Christ praying for me, I wouldn't be afraid. But don't forget that at this moment in time, right now, Jesus Christ is praying for you. The Bible says he ever lives. He always lives to make intercession on behalf of you and me. He's praying for us constantly. Here he prays that his joy would be fulfilled in our lives because he knows at times, inevitably, we're going to be hated here and there. When you live your life for Jesus Christ, when you allow God to manifest his name, just like he said he did, son and father, he said, I've manifested your name, father, means I've shown through me, I've shined the light of who you are. When you do that, some people around you are going to squint. Try it out sometime. When your wife's asleep, in the middle of the night, and it's dark, flip the light on. What's she going to do? She's going to go, no, turn that off, turn that off. And that is an understandable reaction. You're being told in advance that that's what people will do sometimes when you talk to them about the Lord. They're going to squint. Because Jesus said in John chapter 3 that they prefer the darkness over the light. Because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. So they don't want to humble themselves and bow down before the Creator, and so they continue in their sin. So he's saying, I'm praying that in the midst of some of the rejection that you will experience, some of the humiliation, all of these kinds of things, that you will not give in, that you will not get discouraged, that you will have joy. Because the temptation would be to just hole up and hide out and say, I'm not going out there talk about the Lord. And that's none of you or else you wouldn't be here this morning. But there's a temptation sometimes for a believer to stay at home because it's too hard out there. But really, the bigger temptation is that we would just blend in instead. Right? That we would say, all right, I'm a Christian here on Sunday morning. I raise my hands to God. I pray. I read my Bible. But then when I go to work, I check my Christianity at the door. And when they tell those jokes, we whisper in the cubicle. That's what we do. Because, well, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. And so that's not exactly what Jesus has in mind here, okay? So as he continues, he begins to define sanctity a little bit. He says in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, so let's not all move to the hills and build a compound, because we need to share the love of Christ. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? No, we have to do it. So he says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, we know we're eternally secure in Christ, so he's not saying that the devil can come along and knock us off of our salvation track. He's saying the devil can come along and tempt us so that we're less usable for his purposes, so that we're not living a sanctified life. And when I'm not living a sanctified life, then God's not getting glory in my life, and people aren't seeing what that character looks like. That light's not shining brightly through my life. So he doesn't want us to stay away from the world. He doesn't want us to blend in with the world. He wants us to be sanctified among the world. He continues here by saying, they are not of the world. Speaking of disciples, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by what? Your truth. What is this truth? It says, your word is your truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by what? The truth. And what's the truth? His word. His word. The word sanctify means to set yourself aside for his purposes. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you have a halo over your head, that you wear a black robe and go around with a wheelbarrow full of rules and you try as best as you can in your own strength to be really, really, really good. That's not what sanctify means. Sanctify means I set myself aside for his purposes. Last night, I set myself aside an ear of corn and a baked potato for my purposes. That baked potato was not entitled to get up and go do whatever it wanted. 
So what am I basically saying? I'm saying that I'm made, I need to make myself available to God for his purposes. It doesn't mean I live a perfect life because nobody lives up to that standard. It means I am making myself available to you, oh God. My life's not mine anymore. When I came to Christ, I said, no, I'm giving my life to you. All that I have is in you, Lord, we sang earlier, right? We've given that up already. That somehow... Glory will be brought to his name, that I might manifest his name. Just like Jesus said, I have manifested his name. I have manifested your name, Father. That's our prayer, too, that we might manifest, that we might shine brightly his name. Remember another one of those songs we used to sing growing up was Shine, Jesus, Shine. Remember that song? Shine, Jesus, Shine. Well, how can Jesus shine in this world independent of his church? Well, I suppose he could if he wanted to, but that's not what he chooses to do. He chooses to use his church to shine. So if Jesus is going to shine, he's got to do it through us, which means we need to live sanctified lives. Well, how do we live sanctified lives? Well, he said it there. The key to sanctification is his word. Verse 17 again, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then again in verse 19, he said that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I don't know anyone who's living a sanctified life apart from the Word of God. I don't know anyone. There may be someone, but I don't know anyone that is living a sanctified life apart from a regular dose of the Word of God because it cleanses us. It's like taking a shower on the inside. Because you go out into the world every day and you might be a believer in Christ and you love God, but guess what? You track dirt and you attract dust through no fault of your own sometimes. Something on TV or something somebody said at work or a billboard. Hey, I got to drive on 101. It's not my fault the billboard was there. But that's now in your head. And so we need the word of God to cleanse us. How often do you take a shower? Don't answer that question. That's between you and your spouse. <laughs> but it's sort of a daily thing, right? That's the idea, that we're showering daily. It's a part of our routine, that we bathe ourselves in his word. There's one other key, though, I want to point out before we move on to the sanctified life. It's not just his word but it's something else. Look at verse 18 again. It says, as you sent me into the world, as the Father sent the Son into the world, I also sent them into the world. Because another key to sanctification is being sent by God. What did the Father send the Son to do? The work on the cross, right? And so now the Son sends us to do the work as well. We're commissioned. We are all called by God to do his work. And that's another big key to living a sanctified life is to get involved in some kind of service. It brings accountability into my life. Idle hands and idle minds are still, to this day, the devil's workshop. Because I got too much time on my hands instead of serving him. I have a friend who told me that his devotion life was a train wreck until he got involved in children's ministry. And what that forced him to do was, well, if I'm going to be in the classroom, what if one of the kids asked me a question about the lesson? Better study up. See how that works? That's accountability. Now, I'm not saying we all have to be teachers, because guess what? With any service for God comes dependence on God. Without any shadow of a doubt, you start doing anything for the Lord, you're going to find yourself praying and reading the word more often. You're going to find yourself, when you're doing that, living a more sanctified life. Now, this is where it was good so far. Great prayer. But this is where, in my opinion, the prayer gets even better. As we transition into verse 20, he's still praying for disciples. But now he's praying for future disciples, specifically. Specifically for those that would come to Christ, as far as we know, at least some 1,900 or so, some odd years later on down the road. 
He says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, now it's their word too. The Father gave the word of the Son. It goes to the apostles. The apostles sort of birthed the church in the book of Acts. We get to the early church fathers in the first and second and third century and down throughout the years, Spurgeon and Moody and Wesley and Billy Graham and then you and me today. He's talking about believers. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. And you're going to see that word one here several times in the last few verses. What's he talking about? He's talking about unity. Unity within the body of Christ is so important. Now, not unity for unity's sake, okay? But unity is important there. Unity is important, it says, end of verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. That's why unity is so important. Because the world has a hard time believing the testimony of a Christian if we're divided. So unity is so vital. That's the purpose behind it. That you may believe. That the world may believe. It comes from unity. He says, In the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be, there's that word, one, just as we are one. He likens it to how the Son and the Father are one. He wants the church to be one as well. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me as you have loved me. That's his objective. He wants people to know that the Father sent the Son. How will they know that if we are unified? It's one of the things I've come to learn down throughout the years. It's taken time. It's taken time. But I've come to figure out, and I don't claim to be a man of marked wisdom or anything like that. Not some wise old owl. I'm a guy still very much learning, in the process of learning. But one of the things I have come to appreciate as God sort of brings me along in Christ is the diversity within the body of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about heresy. I'm not talking about holding hands with all the world's religions in an ecumenical fashion. No, I'm talking about in Christ, I've come to appreciate, you've come to appreciate, the diversity within the body of Christ. I've, I've become thankful for the different styles and the different visions and the different emphases that other Christians have, that other churches have. I praise God for those kinds of things. Listen, no one church can be all things to all people. That's impossible. It can't happen. I mean, if it were the case, God would go into a community, he'd buy a big old 100-acre plot of land, he put a huge mega building on top of it, and we wouldn't even need parking because trams would run in and out of the place, and they'd go right by your house to pick you up in the morning perfectly, and it would be like Disneyland for kids. It'd have water slides and cotton candy. <laughs> and for those that like a more meditative, reflective environment, it would be that also at the very same time somehow. No, that's not how it works. There's diversity within the body. We're not all supposed to be at the same place doing the exact same thing, and that's okay. It's okay. It's to be celebrated. It's out of necessity because God knows that he reaches different people in different environments with different means. Because that's what he does. <clears throat> now, I know some people, some skeptics, will be tempted then because of that diversity to stand back and go, see, See, they don't agree. Look how many churches there are. They don't agree. Eh, just the opposite. Just the opposite. Because a genuine seeker will see the diversity within the church body, but will see the unity of the cross. And they'll recognize that and come to the conclusion that that can only be God. That only God could do that. Think about it. Room this size, 55, 60 people in here, whatever there is, we couldn't agree on anything. Not one thing other than the cross. Politics? No way. Nutrition? 
Dave Campbell and I wouldn't be friends if we had to root for the same teams. We can't even all agree on the San Francisco Giants. At least I can't. Ouch. I was going to say it at some point. I just lay it all out there. I'm a Dodger fan. It's the way it goes. Oh. Isn't that amazing? People are leaving. I was with you the whole way until you started talking about the Dodgers. Then I'm out of here. Uh, unity is a witness to the world. That's why they created universities. You know what university means? Unity in diversity. You look at a coin, it says e pluribus unum. means out of the many, one. The world is looking for unity. We seek to model it for them in our love for God. But the world can't capture it. Everybody should be united, but they don't know how to do it because there's nothing to unite them. All they have to do, though, is look at the most perfect unity in the universe, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Holy Trinity. That's unity and diversity together at the same time. And that's why the message of the cross unifies us, even though we have different styles and different callings. It's also why I think it's seemingly every week God presses upon my heart to emphasize unity within this local body as well. It's why I'm so protective of relationships. It's why I really emphasize it all the time. Wednesday, we're talking about fellowship. The need to be on the same page and to be working together be unified in our common calling. So, he assures them of security. He prays for my sanctity as well as our unity. And all of that would be good enough and this would still be the holy of holies in the temple of scripture. This would still be the best prayer that there ever was. But then, he flat out just hits a home run here as we look at this last little addendum to the prayer, which is priceless. He says, Father, this is Jesus saying these words. Remember, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Where is he talking about? Heaven. That they may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. How bad do you want to go to heaven? How bad do you want to see Jesus Face to face. Well, that's pretty awesome. But you know what's more awesome? Is he badly wants you there. More so. He wants you there more so than you want to be there. How about that? You could get nothing out of this morning. And you could meditate on that and go, Jesus can't wait for me to get to heaven. He's excited for me to be there. A little less than 15 years ago, bought a wedding ring for my wife and I went down to the mall with my mom to help pick out that ring and I had that wedding ring in my possession all of five or six hours because I couldn't wait to give it to her. I can't keep those kinds of secrets. I was excited. I wanted to tell her. I wanted to share that with her. That's sort of what he's saying here. You ever just really hit a home run with like a present or a surprise or a romantic dinner with your spouse or a Christmas present where you knew when they opened this, oh, when they opened this, because you knew you hit it. You knew it was the perfect present and you knew when they opened it, they would be thrilled. A couple years ago, my wife and I um, got some tickets for her sister and her husband and their two kids to go to Disneyland and a hotel night stay down there. And the second that she opened that present up, she started to cry because she wanted to take her kids there and she had never taken her kids to Disneyland before. And it's like, yes, home run present. Enjoy it because next year you're all getting socks. <laughs> <laughs> But that is the way the Lord looks at us as it relates to us being in heaven someday. He can't wait 
to knock your socks off with heaven, with his glory that he had before the foundation of the earth. So, just to recap real quick, he ensures our security, he prays for our sanctity and our unity, he now says he longs for our company that we might share in his glory. And all of that is wonderful, but he ends on a note that actually should be of no surprise to anyone. He says that we should go about all of that lovingly. He says in verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And it doesn't surprise you that God would end on that note, does it? And make sure you're loving each other along the way as you're doing these kinds of things. I think I know why John Knox wanted this prayer to be read to him over and over and over to him again and again on his deathbed. Because isn't it amazing what a prayer can do? One of the songs on that first CD that Mike sang, isn't it amazing what a prayer can do? But how much more so? A prayer from Jesus. It can up and change your perspective on everything. Because notice as you go through that prayer, what's he focused on as he prays to the Father, interceding on our behalf for his people? What does he want for us? It's all spiritual. None of it is riches and fame. It's not even health. It's all spiritual. It's all sanctity, unity for God's glory. And I leave us with this challenge this morning, okay? So much of what we do that we think is so important, is it really in line with our sanctity and the unity for God's glory? Because that's what he prayed for us on our behalf to the Father. Amen?